Hi everyone, welcome to Steps Audio Channel. We are very excited to share our content from Steps events to learn all about the latest trends in startups, digital media, fintech, future tech, and wellness in emerging markets. You can find us on Enagami, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to your favorite channel and we hope you enjoy the content. Good morning, good afternoon. Thank you for staying with us right here on the FinTech and Future stage. Some amazing panelists so far. And the day continues right here. Remember in the afternoon, it is transforming into the future stage. But right now, we are still focused on FinTech. The next panel is headed by Mohamed Kheri, who is going to be moderating the panel. Uh, Mohamed, if you would like to join us on the stage, please welcome him. They're going to be discussing P2P solutions across uh, the past five years. Joining Mohamed on the stage is Faisal Tukan of Zena. Welcome, Faisal. Padmini Gupta of Zare. Sujoy Ghosh from Data Culture and Faisal Al Harun from TAP. Please give them a very warm welcome. Hi, everyone. Thank you, uh, first of all, for attending and thanks for our panelists for making the time. Uh, so today's topic would be mainly about uh, P2P payments and financial inclusion. Uh, this is a topic where we've seen a lot of changes in the region uh, very recently that is driven by uh, changing consumer needs and the evolution of some of the use cases such as uh, social payments and the like. And this we'll discuss more extensively in today's discussion. Uh, but also we've seen a huge push from the regulators and from, from even the banks and the ecosystem trying to penetrate uh, that market. Uh, whether some of them failed or succeeded, that's a different story. Uh, but this is what we're here to discuss. Uh, today we have uh, actually a diverse panel of uh, CEOs and co-founders of uh, some of the startups in the region that tackle financial inclusion from different uh, perspectives. Uh, so we have uh, Faisal uh, with Zina that's, uh, that's working on a kind of social payments and P2P payments. Uh, we have Sejoy uh, that's mainly enabling the, the ecosystem more from pushing forward uh, smartphone adoption and enabling uh, financing for that. Uh, we have Faisal from TAP who's uh, kind of enabling different digital wallet platforms deliver their solutions. Uh, and kind of uh, in, innovate on that front. And finally, we have Padmini, who's, who's kind of enabling uh, some of the, uh, of the families to have their own uh, ecosystem of financial products. So please help me welcome uh, the panelists on the stage. Thank you. Uh, so first off, I'll start maybe with Sajoy. So Sajoy, from, from your experience, so can you elaborate more on how you kind of uh, help or push forward the financial inclusion agenda and how do you help people kind of access financial products through financing uh, and, and bridging the gap between banks and, and, and lenders? Sure. Uh, so to begin with, uh, you know, I think before we get to financial inclusion, digital inclusion is mandatory, right? Because digital inclusion or having access to a smartphone really sets the tone for all of this, you know, growth to happen, right? Uh, and that's where we kind of come in. Uh, we try and enable banks to reach out to the unbanked and the underbanked and lend for people to buy their first smartphone, right? And therefore, you know, try and get onto the journey. Now, something that is very important is that, you know, in a lot of emerging markets, we actually see that, you know, people who are not digitally included, you know, are actually paying more for a certain set of services because they don't have access, right? So that's the first step. Uh, but we also see that, uh, you know, in these emerging markets, uh, we're actually leapfrogging a certain set of generations of payment technologies and coming on to, you know, something that is, you know, near real time, you know, absolute instant payments, you know, payment frameworks kind of coming in, you know, driven by certain national banks and, you know, uh, government authorities. Uh, but 
what we really need to understand is that the kind of people that we're talking about, you know, as you know, as, as we just heard, right, 75% of Egypt's, you know, uh, adult population is unbanked, right? That's a huge growth opportunity, not just for banks, but all of us around here, right? Uh, but these guys are also the most vulnerable of the lot because they're still not technology savvy, right? It is their first loan that they're taking in. And it is important for all of us because, you know, to be honest, the regulator is still not looking at that direction uh, to ensure that, you know, these guys are safeguarded. The systems have enough, uh, you know, control so that, you know, they don't get hurt in the entire process of coming on to this, you know, side of getting included in the financial journey. Because these guys also in their small communities are huge champions for services, right? If they hear about a service and it's worked for them, they'll actually go out and recommend to four or five people and which to be honest, brings down the cost of acquisition for most of us as we go along. So I think it's important to not just look at, you know, people coming on to the, you know, framework of, you know, having access to financial technologies and, you know, services, uh, but also the process of how they're coming on and stay on with all of us as they go along. Yeah, I, I like your point on, on actually people having to pay more on uh, some of the financial products uh, to access them that are not financially included. And, and coming from Egypt and having worked across the region, we've seen that uh, being capitalized on big time for the, the, the players that are actually in the financing space. And since you're primarily kind of a mediator in the, in the financing space, how did that work out? What kind of premiums uh, do you see and, and, and kind of what, what is the landscape looking like from that perspective? Uh, so I think, uh, you know, what we really work on is uh, people who are first-time borrowers, new to credit, unbanked, underbanked. And, uh, you know, these are the guys who are taking the first loan. So it's setting up a relationship with a bank or a lender. And it could be, you know, it could be a P2P lender. It could be, you know, uh, you know another fintech, uh, you know, that's lending out to somebody uh, who would probably never get a loan and would resort to, you know, unofficial, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, networks to kind of get some money, right? Uh, and, and that's where, you know, things actually start looking up from. Uh, and once these guys come on to the network, the relationship starts building, uh, you know, in countries where you have credit bureaus, et cetera, uh, those ones, you know, start, uh, you know, kind of coming in and people become a lot more amenable towards giving out more loans to such people, right? And that's where, you know, I'm sure a lot of us, you know, on this panel as well, you know, kind of come in and capitalize on the fact that, you know, hey, now this guy is now credit worthy to a certain extent, right? We've got a thin file on him and, uh, you know, let's try and build a relationship with him as we go along. So it's very important to see that, you know, the first loan and how they get the loan and how they service the loan, repay the loan uh, becomes a really important stepping stone going forward. Uh, thank you for that perspective. I think, uh, Faisal, um, maybe from your experience with TAP, uh, what are kind of the advantages of having the emergence of these kind of solutions, be it the broader digital wallets or P2P payments in specific uh, in emerging markets? And, and how are they evolving in your point of view? Well, uh, thanks, Mohammed. I think that's an interesting question. Today, for example, if we look at uh, P2P, I think, uh, first of all, I have to clarify that there is a lot to love about uh, P2P payments today. Um, I can see that consumers love P2P, families love P2P, the unbanked segments love P2P. I mean, we're talking about the fact that today you can have instant payments, instant transfers without the need of having an IBAN account, a lot of incentives, rewards, and, and cashbacks. So 
how did it evolve? I mean, in theory, if you look at P2P payments, they're they're mainly um, some sort of form of, of a digital wallet. Um, they're either a staged wallet or or a stored value wallet. So they're naturally becoming um, a, a popular uh, payment uh, method, which is is uh, quite appealing for businesses as well nowadays. Today, we at TAP, uh, we've noticed that there is a lot of genuine hype over digital wallets. A lot of businesses are eager to accept um, digital wallets um, for, for um, mainly uh, multiple reasons, such as uh, instant payments. There is no need for any special uh, hardware to be installed. And above all, um, it's even commercially attractive for, for businesses. So that's how things are uh, naturally evolving in, in, in that sector. So it's, it's making, in a way, it's making lives, uh, um, consumer lives easier, and it's making the business lives easier, and it's also making the regulators' lives way easier. I mean, today, uh, regulators are obsessed with visibility as opposed to cash transactions. And hence, you're witnessing lately how regulators are, are coming up with the new uh, EMI rules and regulations all across the region. And they're pretty much uh, uh, supportive of uh, digital wallets, P2P transactions, because they truly see the advantage of them. Yeah, I think this is a very good point. And, and generally speaking, what we've seen is that the more you go into peer to peer transactions, the more the offering evolves into enabling as well digital payments, uh, be it to merchants, uh, be it to online retailers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and basically on, on TAPS front, at least you've been working with, with multiple digital wallet providers to help them move from just the P2P payment uh, landscape and more into enabling merchants as well to accept payments and having this uh, closed loop system where the you're, you're kind of eliminating the middle layer and helping them uh, reduce on costs. How did that work out? I mean, today we have a lot of uh, relationships with uh, leading digital wallets in the region. And we aim to work with them closely, first of all, to, to enable the acceptance piece. And I think that there are a lot more that we can do together. Um, and again, I mean, the, the hype that we've witnessed lately, we were, we were actually uh, surprised with the number of transactions that are, that are happening on, on, on uh, digital wallets. Um, customers, they really love them. Businesses really love them. And I mean, at TAP, I mean, the, the beauty of, of our infrastructure is that we can roll out such services to literally thousands of merchants in seconds. So, so, so we collaborate with them. And I mean, merchants, they're, they're, um, they're open for any form of, of uh, payment methods, as long as uh, it makes sense for them, uh, it solves uh, problems. And I believe digital wallets are solving a lot of problems for businesses as well. Uh, no, actually, this is uh, this is very clear. I think uh, from a merchant perspective, the value proposition is clear or more saving costs, uh, having uh, one of the trendy solutions, uh, kind of having accepting those uh, solutions and the like. But if you would summarize kind of what is the hook for the consumers themselves? So why would they? So, for instance, why would I change from using my digital banking app and, and go use one of the digital wallets that are out there? What is the real hook there? 
I mean, I like to call it, I mean, digital wallets, they have what I like to call the WhatsApp effect. I mean, if, if you go back in the day and you, if you recall, uh, BlackBerry Messenger was the dominant messenger. But BlackBerry, in order for you to add your colleague or friend, you needed a pin, uh, which you never um, know what it is, which is similar to, let's say, the IBAN. Today, with, with, with the digital wallets and, and P2P, you don't have to add, you don't have to get the IBAN. You can transfer funds either through email or mobile number, um, probably username. So, so it's clearly, um, uh, addressed the problem. That's one piece. Another piece is the gamification of, of such services, the incentives, the rewards. I mean, they're mind blowing. And, and I think they're, they're, uh, in the right direction. Now, speaking of, of, of banks, I mean, banks are, are always trying to catch up. Um, uh, and even with the new, let's say, ISO uh, 222, that's, 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 um, rolling out, uh, um, in November 2022, um, which will support instant payments. I don't think that it will even impact, um, such services. I think it will only complement them. Um, yeah. And that, uh, that's, I guess, uh, the reason why, why consumers are hooked. Yeah, um, I totally second that. Honestly, we've seen uh, even globally the rise of I would call social payments and uh, and kind of uh, new use cases of the P2P payments. Uh, you've seen kind of the Venmo model, uh, which is being also brought to the region, and uh, and I think this is your uh, area here, Faisal. Uh, uh, with Zena, I believe you work primarily on enabling social payments, right? This is working. Um, so, uh, Faisal touched on uh, a number of great points. Um, with Xena, we focus on two things, making payments as quick as sending a WhatsApp message. And number two would be, we, uh, add gifts. That's pretty much it to the payments. And as soon as we added that social capability, our engagement went through the roof. So the average user uses Xena. If you remove gifts, we've actually studied this internally to do A-B testing. If you remove social messaging, an average user will use it around once or twice a month. If you add social messaging to it, that almost doubles in engagement. And what ends up happening is people will start using your platform for anything beyond payments. We've seen people use it for jokes. We've seen people use it to send group payments to just nudge people to a certain direction. It takes the dimension of payments from being very one-way and transactional. You owe me money to one being one of basically a social interaction, right? Like, let me nudge this person here, joke with that person there, engage with a group of people. Um, so the gamification slash social component is actually proven, not only in Xena, but in studies globally. And it really makes, turns that awkward experience into something that people enjoy. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much the impact of it. So I second what he says. Um, it's actually very interesting. I've tried a couple of those out myself and, uh, and find the gamification component uh, quite exciting. Uh, on that note, what kind of, uh, I would say, features that, uh, that you cover within the, the, the gamification? And here, what I'm trying to think of is how do you really drive engagement? So is it, is it more of a kind of a WhatsApp equivalent, but with the payment component, or does it include more than that? It's a great question. Um, so um, the way Xena operates is um, as soon as you sign up, uh, before you sign up, actually, we tell you how many friends you have on Xena. And their pictures are right there, so they're all looking at you, right? And uh, this, this normalizes the ecosystem for everyone. And um, what we've realized, and this is actually after talking to some advisors and investors from Venmo, 
Um, they told us that the magic number for the number of people on the platform is seven people. If you have seven people on Venmo or Xena or whatever your payment platform is, engagement skyrockets. We've done this internally as well. We've seen a similar number. I think at three, engagement picks up. At seven, it's exponential. So the question is, how do you get um, someone who has seven people on Xena to engage, right? So what we built out in Xena is we have an invite feature, and then we have all of your friends, and we have under them how many friends they have on Xena. So right today, I'm going to open up Xena. I see Faisal's number, and I see he has 20 friends on Xena. We put a small button right next to that saying, get cash. That's simple, right? And that has driven our referrals through the roof as well. So it's the social com element combined with the transaction element. Does that make sense? And um, I think social is the biggest push to get people to engage, if that answers your question. Seeing engagement from other friends, seeing that they're on the platform, and seeing how many people they have on the platform as well. Um, yeah, I think this is uh, very interesting, actually. So um, in terms of kind of your target segments and the people you actually try to, to get on the, the platform, um, from my experience, at least, typically digital wallets either target kind of the youth, the tech-savvy population, uh, and or... Uh, the unslash underbank, uh, and this is what really drives kind of financial inclusion. So, just to to put things into context and to perspective, which of the target segments do you really target, uh, or others, if any, and and which is your highest penetration? Um, so, um, there's a great study by um, Harvard Business Review about this, and it talks about digital wallets. And um, unfortunately, speaking, uh, the higher tier of society dictates what financial instruments the rest of society uses. So if you look at different payment methods globally, Venmo, Paytm even, uh, WePay in China, the affluent in society then basically push their payment mechanism of choice across. Um, it's an unfortunate truth, but it's how it operates. So those are early adopters. And what ends up happening is uh, it feeds into the rest of society. And um, with that being said, a, a typical strategy of any fintech globally is usually to start with the affluent and then work outwards from there. That's what PTM did back in the day. That's what Venmo has done. Um, and then it's ironic because um, for the affluent, it's a nice to have, really. But for the people that they're paying and interacting with, it's a mu very much a necessity, right? And the aha moment will only be clicked when you work from the affluent inwards, right? And they get paid through the platform versus vice versa, if you think about it on a very specific user level. So the strategy is always start with the youth and the affluent, right? And then the goal is always to work everyone into the platform, and that's how it works, basically. Um, I like your point, actually, on how in order to kind of drive really inclusion, payments to the, the kind of the, 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 the lower parts of the pyramid should go through uh, such apps and uh, how do you see that working out for digital wallets specifically in the region? So do you see that happening in the near future? Extremely near future. So um, if we want to be very blunt, the reason why we're all here is because of, reg of a regulatory inflection. Um, none of us could have ex existed three or four years ago because the frameworks didn't exist. Um, what happened was uh, there's been a massive movement uh, locally here in the UAE and throughout the region where money services businesses, people like Xena can come out and operate, right? And now we're all here and we have a stage. Um, what that means is basically the way Xena operates on the infrastructure level is we partner with a bank. We have a bank account with a bank and they're our official banking partner. All we do is we take that bank account and we split it into a million pieces. And then we distribute those pieces to consumers, right? Whether they're affluent or underbanked, 
is irrelevant, right? But um, so basically, the money services business's license allows us to operate between being a bank and nothing, and allows us to target more users, if that makes sense. So we're building on top of that infrastructure. Uh, very clear. Um, I think to your point on how you're kind of breaking uh, the bank account into a million pieces and that is kind of uh, indirectly impacting financial inclusion and bringing more people into the system. I think Padmina, you, uh, you from your experience have a lot uh, to say about that. So why don't you kind of uh, introduce the model you're bringing and, and how's that driving financial inclusion? Sure. So look, in, in my view, um, at the heart of finance and at the heart of financial inclusion is this issue of, of actually one third of the world not wor working, right? All financial products are actually geared towards the one third of the world that actually works. And so what happens is that one third of the world has to figure out how they're going to share their finances with the remaining two thirds of the world. And that is the problem that I'm actually fixing at Share. So enabling people that have financial products to share them with those that don't. And, you know, essentially allowing that person to create a debit or credit card, allowing them to share it with the person that is within their trusted network, um, within limits, you know, to, uh, for spending, and then full transparency and control, right? So that's a problem and that's a model we're using to solve this problem. And how does kind of the, the model help you access those two thirds uh, in a kind of a cost effective way that's appealing to them? Can you, how does it, um, repeat the question for me, please. So I was saying, you mentioned that kind of one third of the population is trying to kind of get the cash to the two thirds of the population that don't have typically access to those kind of products. What I'm saying is kind of, how is the model that you're bringing uh, kind of helping those two-thirds access those financial products and access this kind of cash transactions uh, in a, in a cost-effective manner, but as well in a manner that's, uh, that's incentivizing to them to, being, uh, to, to be onboarded on those platforms? Okay, well, so let's start with the product itself. The product's free. So there's no, you know, there's nothing charging, uh, there's no fees to actually move money back and forth, right? So that's, that's one. So how do you get access? Essentially, you leverage existing financial products to create additional ones and you get the access to the people within your trusted network. And it's a multiplier effect, sort of like what Fezal was saying. If you essentially, this is how the world actually works, right? You've got a circle of reference. And in certain worlds, it's up to seven. In other worlds, it can be multiple, right, in large communities. And essentially, what we're doing is leveraging those networks of trust to build financial products for those networks. And uh, in, in that manner, like if, for instance, I have a friend or, or my younger brother that I want to kind of Give him a financial product, a card, for instance, yes. uh, to use. Uh, how is that differentiated from a typical bank offering where you kind of have a supplementary card? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question, and I'll tell you why, right? So when you go to a financial institution for a product, essentially they're engineering trust. What's happening is they're KYCing you at a really high level. They're looking for employment history, credit history, all kinds of histories. So, and that is because they don't know you. 
there is zero trust in that interaction to start with. And essentially, that's not how people work right now, right? You actually have, the people that you interact with every day are the people that you trust. They're within your network. And what we're doing is we're allowing that sort of network to build on itself to allow for the creation of financial products. So let me give you a, a, a very, you know, close nearby example, right? I can share my card with my husband. I can share my card with my kids. I can share my card with my mom who lives several, you know, countries away. I can do all of those things all on my platform. Um, and, and that's how that sort of network effect comes in. And I'm assuming that has kind of a, a, a digital payments component. So it's not just about transferring money or P2P, but also you kind of use those access to the cards to pay for things either digitally online or uh, or even in, in, in person, right? Absolutely. So you don't actually have to transfer money. I'm actually, uh, we don't think that transferring money actually makes sense in that sort of direction. Um, you should just be able to share it. So how do you ring fence kind of the finances of the people you share your your accounts or your cards with versus yours? The tech does it. It allows you to uh, set limits, set uh, time limits, set amount limits, set a whole bunch of limits. You get full transparency in what's going on just the way you would if you had a normal bank account or debit card or credit card. Um, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, you. I think I'll, I'll move the next question to you again, uh, Faisal. So on the topic of digital payments, uh, more of and, and how it drives financial inclusion, you've been already operating in the Kuwaiti market and in several other markets in, in the region uh, and primarily more on digital payments than just peer to peer payments. Uh, so how, how do you see that enabling or driving financial inclusion? I mean, uh... When you look at the digital wallets, the P2P services, I mean, they're clearly giving us, uh, I mean, they're clearly uh, dropping the, the, uh, the, the barrier of entry to, 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 uh, to the unbanked uh, segment. As, as I mentioned previously, um, today, uh, even if you do not have a bank account, um, you can still have, have a wallet with, let's say, STC pay or, 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 or others. So that by default, um, I mean, um, helps uh, the, the financial inclusions. Um, you see a lot of the unbanked segments now rely heavily on, on uh, such services. Um, yeah, and, and, and I expect it even to grow. And um, I mean, if you look at other markets such as Egypt, um, there are a lot of efforts, whether from the new companies that are rising nowadays from the regulators. Um, they have, uh, I mean, they're clearly focused on, on trying to, to include as much as possible, as much consumers as possible and try to, to, to have them utilize one of, one of, uh, those services, mainly, mainly for, uh, visibility purposes, uh, and, and some other aspects such as, um, uh, even the impact that it has on on taxation as well. So so, 
Um, actually, building to your point, uh, we've seen in many uh, geographies and, and countries across the region that um, fintechs are nowadays trying to engage different ecosystem players through kind of collaborative partnerships, those ecosystem players being either other fintechs that helps them deliver their products to market or in some cases, and we've discussed this uh, extensively, uh, banks. Uh, and they're trying to find the sweet spot between leveraging the bank's infrastructure uh, and ecosystem to drive uh, not only innovation, but to drive their solutions to market and increase adoption. But on the other hand, make sure that uh, the bank immunity doesn't kind of kill the, the, the innovation drive within the fintechs. So how do you see, see that going from your experience in, in Kuwait? I mean, uh, again, uh Banks are a big piece of, I mean, uh, of such services and offerings. Uh, I mean, we still rely heavily on on banks. Banks are always lagging. Um, nowadays, I see them picking up um, stuff. Uh, I see them much faster than than they used to be, which which is definitely a good thing. Um, so. A lot of banks are quite interested in, in, in the new fintechs that are arising. Some of them are acquiring fintechs. Some of them are embedding the, uh, the services of the fintechs within, within the bank services. So I still believe that, uh, I mean, things complement each other in a way. I mean, uh, fintechs will still need to rely heavily on, on, on banks. Banks are slow. They are picking up. Regulation also is currently supporting uh, such uh, transformation that's happening. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I mean, uh, on 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 what's ahead of us. It has been always a tricky game between fintechs and banks, but I think uh, the actually quite surprisingly, what has been I, happening in the ecosystem. Uh, and how fintechs have been driving a lot of uh, not only adoption but innovation uh, really uh, put banks in a situation where they have no option but uh, to work closely with fintechs right across across the board. And I think, Sujoy, even from your experience, you're working closely with with banks and financial institutions to bridge that gap. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Because from our experience, we've seen that banks actually feel that it's economically more viable to reach the unbanked and the underbanked if they go through the fintech route, right? Uh, because their banks are typically averse to risk, right? They don't want to risk and they don't know about these people that they're dealing with, right? As Padmani said that there's a KYC thing that, you know, none of us would probably fill up, right? Uh, and, and, you know, kind of meets the standards that the bank has. So that's where the fintechs kind of come in. They accelerate the movement uh, and therefore, you know, by leveraging, you know, of course, you know, the, the infrastructure that the bank has, but going into territories that the bank normally doesn't want to get into, uh, it's actually ensuring that, you know, uh, there is inclusion and, you know, the spread is much faster. Yeah, I can actually draw on to that from, from my personal experience. So I've seen a lot of banks struggle to kind of push forward the financial inclusion agendas of the central banks. And the issue with that is it doesn't, for them, it doesn't make sense economically to, uh, to serve the, the unslash underbank because, uh, the cost per head is much higher than whatever they generate from it. And they're starting to realize that, okay, the best way to, to go about that is, to leverage the fintechs that these are their kind of prime or I would say captive market uh, and, and leverage their innovative solutions to serve them at a, at a low cost. And, and on the other hand, so they can monetize their infrastructure, right? Because for them, this is an, an additional revenue stream. There's always the fintech uh, theater, that uh, game that everyone is trying to play that we're uh, at the forefront of innovation and the like. So I, I totally second your point. 
Um, to that note, actually, uh, how do you see that ecosystem, uh, not primarily from the fintech side, but from, from the bank side, but from the fintech side uh, and from the peer-to-peer payment side evolving in the coming couple of years? And how do you see it driving further financial inclusion in the region? I think uh, there is a lot of emerging markets are now getting into, uh, you know, a fact that uh, central banks are coming with a payment roadmap. And, uh, you know, for me, I think I'm just looking towards interoperability in both domestic and cross-border payments. Uh, if that happens over the next five years, we'll see a lot of money moving around. And, you know, maybe farmers in Brazil financing farmers in, you know, Egypt, right? And that's going to open up a lot of different business models for all of us. Um, thanks a lot for that. Uh, unfortunately, being conscious of time, uh, we'll have to wrap up this uh, quite interesting discussion. Uh, so thank you, our panelists, for, for your insightful contributions. And, and, and thanks, everyone, for, uh, for giving this time. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find our content on Angami, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media at Step Conference and let's stay in touch.